I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. And grab your Bible. Will you do that? We want to get to work in the text. Galatians chapter 2. For just a minute, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. I am certainly enjoying my studies in this book. I'm learning a lot, and I hope that you are as well. Uh, if you're guests today, this series is entitled, Stay with the Grace of Jesus. Stay with the Grace of Jesus. In other words, stick with the gospel. Don't change it. Don't alter it. Uh, don't allow people to come into the church, into the body of Christ, uh, who might try to subvert or change the true message of, God, of the gospel. But stay with the grace of Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. Uh, just hear me today. If you're trying that route, uh, it is exhausting and it leads nowhere. Uh, salvation is by grace. Just stick with grace, uh, the unmerited favor of God. And so I preached three, two, uh, three sermons to you already uh, from Galatians chapter 1. Last week we were in 11 through 24 of chapter 1, and we transition into chapter 2 today in a message that I'm simply entitling, Unity Makes Us Stronger. Will you say that with me? Unity. One more time. Unity. Look at verse number 5, would you? I'm going to preach through the text and read the verses as I preach, but I want you to focus on the last phrase of verse number five. Paul said, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So that the aletheia, the truth, the veracity of the gospel, it might be preserved, preservation, for who? For you. That's an important note for you as a Christian. Remind yourself often that you are a candidate to drift. You are a candidate. If you let the enemy get into your life and get into your mind, or you listen to false teachers and you receive it, and you don't have discernment, you are a candidate to drift. Paul is saying to these Christians in Galatia, I want the gospel to be preserved for you. Stay with the grace of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the body of Christ is stronger. How many of you believe today that unity matters to God? Unity matters to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll say more about that in just a moment. What I did not say is unity at all cost. Unity at all cost is not found in the Apostle Paul's writings. When you stand for truth, sometimes there's going to be friction. 
There's going to be collision. When you stand for truth and just simply declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are some people who are not going to like it. Francis Shaver, who passed away in 1984, wrote a lot about uh, the gospel and the preservation of the gospel. He wrote a, a, a book entitled The Evangelical Disaster. And in that book, he said this. He said, truth demands confrontation. It must be loving confrontation, but there must be confrontation nonetheless. Now, now, how many of you just admit today you don't like confrontation, all right? You're not a confrontational person, all right? When you bring truth against error or when you bring truth against a secular world, there's going to be some friction. And when those two things come together, we have to be certain and focused that we stick to truth and we're not accommodating to a group of people like the Judaizers here in Galatians chapter 2. Schaefer went on to say this, here is the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth is truth. Now again, that word evangelical there means we're the evangelist. We just simply believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually uh, wrote this quote back in the early 80s. He says, as we Bible believers, we stand for truth as truth. There is only one word for this, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. Now, Schaefer is saying there, uh, basically what Paul is writing about here in Galatians chapter 2, as you get pressure in the church to change, to capitulate, you cannot accommodate false teaching. I recently read a book entitled uh, the book simply is Acts 20, uh, written by a Presbyterian pastor, and he just unpacks what Paul said in uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, where he's about to leave, and he says to the church, look, I'm going to go away, and you're going to somewhat lose your watchdog, all right? That's what he tells them. You know, if I, if I were here, man, I'd be watching out, I'd be pointing out uh, those that come into the church, we'll see this in just a minute, those that slip in. A creep into the church. Paul's warning is, is that after I'm gone, the enemy is going to, uh, to uh, capitalize on the opportunity, and there are going to be wolves that are going to come into the church, and they're going to try to change and subvert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what is going on in Galatians chapter 2. So, so I want you to really leave here today with two thoughts. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to come together because unity makes us stronger. At the same time, I want to challenge all of us to work at protecting the unity of the church. I love what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14 and verse number 19. He said, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue peace and look at, focus on building one another up in the body of Christ. So how do we do that? I think Paul shows us four things. I want to show you four statements uh, in these verses about unity. Here it is. In verses 1 and 2, number 1, I want you to see the diversity of the body of Christ. The diversity of the body of Christ. Paul says, then... After 14 years, 
I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running and had not run in vain. Now, Paul starts off by saying after a period of time or after 14 years, he makes another trip to Jerusalem. We know that there's a a three-year gap between his first visit and the second visit, and so we're going to throw in another 11 years and make that 14. We could even come up with 17 years if we need to. I don't want to get down in the weeds about that, but here's what we know about Paul. Paul made four trips to Jerusalem. On the first one, he mentions here in Galatians, he was there for about 15 days. He met with Peter and uh, spent some time there. We know that he came back the second time in Acts chapter 11. He brought an offering for the poor. From uh, the church at Antioch, he brought some money uh, to help meet the needs of those that were struggling. Trip number three is in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. It's the moment where the church leaders got together and said, yes, the Gentiles are a part of the body of Christ, the church, and they do not have to be circumcised uh, in order to be so. And then, number four, he makes the journey to Jerusalem when he is arrested and he's taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima and then ultimately on to Rome uh, where he ends up losing his life. So four trips to the city of Jerusalem. So here in Galatians chapter 2, the question is, which trip was it? Uh, Some people say he's writing here about his trip in Acts 15 uh, when the Jerusalem council takes place. I'm not going to unpack all of the, uh, the possibilities and back and forth on that. I tend to believe that this is his second trip back when he brings the offering for the poor. Now, why do I believe that? Notice who is with him when he arrives. First of all, there's a man named Barnabas. We find Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. His name is actually Joseph the Levite. And they change his name to Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. How many like to be around encouraging people? All right? I want you to know I can just feel it uh, here in Paul's writings I understand why Paul had somebody with him who was full of encouragement. Because in your journey of faith, there's always moments of discouragement, right? But he's got Barnabas with him. Barnabas was a Jew. Barnabas was saved at Cyprus, and he was saved in Judaism, or saved out of Judaism. So Paul arrives with Barnabas. The other guy that's with him is Titus. Now, What we know about Titus is that he was a good leader. Uh, Very likely, he was a a really good manager, uh, probably uh, showed himself to be very strong in the area of finances. And so there's kind of a a fitting of the puzzle, if you will, that Titus would have arrived with Paul in Jerusalem with that offering uh, from the Christians in Antioch. 
We know that Titus is or has a book in the New Testament where Paul writes him a letter, and he's actually the overseer, if you will, of the church there at Crete. We know that Titus was a leader, but watch, Titus was a Gentile. He's from Antioch. He spends a lot of his life in ministry in Corinth, but here early on, Paul brings him to Jerusalem as a Gentile. Anybody see a problem with that? Uh, Some say that Paul might have even brought him with him to just kind of stoke the bear a little bit, okay? To say, hey, we got this friction going on about Jews and Greeks, and who's a Christian, who's not a Christian? I've got this man right here who's been saved. He's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's a part of the body of Christ, and not only that, he's a leader at the church at Antioch. And so there's this validation of the finances. There's this validation of him as a leader. And what kind of response would he get? What I want you to see in chapter 2 and verse number 1 is the diversity in the body of Christ. Could we celebrate for just a minute that we're not all alike? We're all from different walks of life. Uh, We have different places of geography where we grew up. We all talk different. We all look different. You know, I had this this really amazing moment for me the first time I went on an international missions trip. Could I just be honest and kind of transparent for just a minute? I'm a simple country boy from Alabama. I'd never been out of the country. And so in the back of my mind, I'm going, Lord, here I am. I'm going on a missions trip. And you know, if I, if I get kidnapped and I never come home, I'm, I'm in your will, right? I mean, I'm just being honest with you. You know, I'm going, some of you, I know you get on planes and trains and ships and you go all over the world. For me on that first trip, I was just nervous about the work. And you know what God did in my heart? God showed me the diversity of the body of Christ. I'll never forget that Sunday morning when I got up there in my motel room I use that word motel very loosely. And I was going out. They said, we're going outside of town a good ways. We're going to go up on a mountain outside of town. And you're preaching Sunday morning church. I'll never forget when we topped that hill and it flattened out a little bit. I could see off to the right. I could see a couple of trees and I saw some, some wooden stumps and I saw some boards across those stumps. And we kind of pulled up there and I got out and and there was a guy standing there with a guitar, and, and they just began to sing praises to the Lord, and I didn't understand one word they were saying. But you know what I knew in that moment? I knew the Spirit of God was there. And I realized those precious Portuguese people who didn't talk like me, who didn't look like me, who didn't think like me, they had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you know what? It gave me just a little glimpse early on in my pastoral senior pastor ministry. It gave me just a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. When we gather around the throne of God with every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and we sing praises to our God. What you see here in Galatians chapter 1 is Paul is saying it's no longer just about us. It's no longer just about the gospel coming to the Jews. Now the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And you and I should be here this morning celebrating that the gospel made it to us. 
Because you know what? We are the ends of the earth. The gospel made it to us. You realize there are people all over the world today, the gospel has not made it to them. They have never heard the good news. When I go to the Southern Baptist Convention every year, I promise you the business sessions do not light my fire. But I tell you something that does. Every year we have an IMB, International Mission Board, celebration where they'll be a new batch of missionaries that come across the stage or they're in the room and they're about to go. And some of them will get up and they'll say, my name is so-and-so, this is my wife, these are my kids, we're going to this particular part of the world. But there are others who come up on the stage and all we can see of them is a silhouette through a screen. And for some of them, they don't even let them talk, they talk for them because they are going to places around the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going to places where most of us would not even consider moving our families. But yet we see their commitment and their devotion and their passion to get the gospel to the ends of the earth that people may hear the name of Jesus and of the saving grace of our Lord. And I know one day because of their sacrifice and their commitment, when we get to heaven, we're going to meet some brothers and sisters in Christ literally from the ends of the earth who have been saved by his grace. And I'm telling you, we need to see the diversity in the body of Christ now because I promise you, you're going to see it later. See the diversity. Paul says, look, I've got Barnabas here. He's a, he's a Jew. He's from a Jewish family. But I've got Titus here at the base of Judaism. Here's Titus. He's a Gentile. He's never been circumcised. But he is a brother in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 27 of chapter 12 says, Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul is having to teach this to these Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem that we are one body in Christ. So when it comes to unity, unity is going to make us stronger. Let's celebrate the differences. Let's celebrate the different nationalities and the people who speak different languages because that's exactly what heaven is going to be like. Number two, I want you to see in the text that the devil loves to send confusion. Now notice in verse number 2, Paul is by revelation there, and there's some confusion going on. There's a lot of rumors about him and what he's doing. What kind of message is he given in Syria and Cilicia? What kind of message is he giving in Antioch? So he comes in Jerusalem, and he has a private meeting with the leaders of the church. We learn a little bit later on in this passage that it is primarily Peter, James, and John. And so he sits down with them privately because he wants to clear up any confusion about his message. He says, I want to set before them 
I don't want to do it out in public. I want to sit down with the church leaders, and I want to be able to look at them in the eye, and I want to say, this is my message, the message that I'm preaching. And why does he want to do that? He says, so that my running would not be in vain. Now, Paul is not questioning his message. He's not questioning his calling. He's not saying, I don't know if this is really working or not. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, all of the churches that I'm starting and all the work that is being done, I don't want to see the enemy to come in and to bring bad doctrine and to bring division in the church and then for that church to just die out and go away. When you think about the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 who are in what we know today as modern Turkey, watch this. The warning there in every one of those letters is that the, the, the lampstand, the candle would go out, right? That if you don't make some corrections, most of those letters are corrective. In the letter to the church at Sardis, the dead church, there's no life there. Jesus said to that church, you need to strengthen the things that remain. In other words, stay with the grace of Jesus. If you begin to change things and drift and go the wrong direction, that, that church will die and it will no longer exist. I'm sad to tell you today that every week there are churches in our country, even in our state, that are closing their doors. There is no gospel witness. There is no pastor. There is no congregation. And I'm sad to report to you today, one of, the, one of the goals of my life I want to do is I want to go on the missionary journeys of Paul, and I want to go over there and travel around that area, and I want to go to Ephesus and all those places. Church, hear me today. Every church in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it no longer exists. And that area is filled with Islamic mosques. Now, how did that happen? They are much closer to the origination of Christianity, to the gospel. They are much closer to where Jesus hung on the cross. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. The devil loves to bring confusion and division. He loves to divide. Look in the text. Look at verse number 3. It says, but even Titus, who was with me, he was not forced to, to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Here's that phrase, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You know what Paul says here? It's all about our freedom, our freedom in Christ. If there is anything that you or man attempts to add to the gospel of grace, of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is no longer the gospel. Freedom only comes through Christ. When you add works, here, it's circumcision. Paul says, I have Titus with me. He's a brother in Christ. I met with the leaders of the church. In the church, there are these Judaizers that have crept in, and, they, and they've slipped in, 
And they're there, not by accident, but they have a motive. Their motive is they want to hang out and they want to listen to what's being said. You know, I feel that sometimes as a pastor of the church. There's some people, you know, they don't thank you for preaching the gospel. They just listen to everything that you say almost like a gotcha. I heard a moan there. So they come in, and they're there, they're there to, I'm, I'm going to listen to what you say. Spine out. And I'm going to snatch away your freedom if I can. And Paul says what they're ultimately doing is they're bringing you right back to the slavery that you've been delivered from when you got saved. When you add anything to the gospel, hear me, when you add anything, if you add communion, please hear me, salvation does not come in the communion cup. Your salvation is not in the juice or in the wafer. That juice or wine that you drink, it does not turn into the blood of Christ. It is symbolic of the blood of Christ. It does not turn into that wafer that you ingest. It does not turn into the body of Christ. It is symbolic of the body of Christ. That water that we got in just a few minutes ago, that water does not wash your sins away. It is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ that washes your sins away. You can join every church in this town and be lost without Christ. You can add absolutely nothing to grace. But today the world that we live in, please hear me, but today the world we live in is so pluralistic and it's so universalistic. It's like if you're a religious person and you pray or you meditate, we're all doing the same thing. And I say to that, that is a lie of the enemy. The devil likes to bring confusion. When the Jerusalem council meets in Acts chapter 15, you got to know, read that chapter. Would you do that? That's your homework assignment. It's the big showdown. Jews and Gentiles. The church gathers together. What are we going to do? The gospel first came to the Jews. Now it's gone to the Gentiles. What are we going to do with all these folks who say they're a part of our family now, the body of Christ? Look in Galatians chapter 15, verse number 1. The Judaizers are there, and here's what they say. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, here it is, unless you are circumcised, According to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Someone said to me recently that I was talking to, unless I receive my communion, I'm not going to heaven. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The way you go to heaven is by receiving Christ. And it's not by work. It's not by deed. But what's happened to the religious world, the religious circles, is that certain people have slipped in and there's this intentionality in their deeds. And I, I just want to say again, throw this out there for just a minute, thank God for the reformers. Thank God for the reformers who stood up and said, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, that it's not works. 
Because if it were works, Paul said we'd boast about it. We'd talk about what we have done, what we have accomplished. We would be self-made men and women. But when you're a Christian, you know it's not about us. It's about him. It's about grace. But the devil brings confusion into the church. Notice what Paul says in verse number five. I love this. He said, we did not yield to them in submission. Christian, would you hear me for just a minute? The, the, there's pressure on the Christian community to capitulate and to change and to water it down and to have a bigger tent. And I just want you to know, I think it's a good thing for us to have Paul's attitude and his approach in verse number five. We will not yield to thus says the Lord. We're not going to do it. Paul said, we didn't give them an inch we didn't give them a small group Sunday school class. We didn't give them the Sunday night service. We didn't invite them to the theological conversation and, and, and give them a hearing. No, Paul said, let them be anathema. The wrath of God is on them if they preach a gospel contrary to us. I want you to notice in verse number four an important point, though. Notice that Paul refers to the faults brothers, the false brothers. There's a reason why in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said that we should practice church discipline. There's a reason for that. You know why? Because as Christians, we can drift. We can drift into sin, and we can drift into doctrinal error. And when that happens, our brothers and sisters in Christ need to grab us and bring us back where we're supposed to be. Amen? The devil brings confusion and division in the church. I love verse number six. Let me move quickly. I love verse number six. So Paul shifts back now to Peter, James, and John, and he says, and from those who seem to be influential. Now think about the early church there in Jerusalem. You've got Peter, James, and John. I mean, in our Christian faith, those three, I mean, they're right beside Jesus, right? I mean, they're, they're way up there. They're, they're influential in the early church, so they've got a lot of sway. People are listening to them as the church leaders. Notice, though, what Paul says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. You know what I love about Paul here? I just see Paul's backbone. Paul is just saying, look, if I'm over here with Dr. Smith or if I'm over here with Dr. Picklesimer, it doesn't matter who I, whoever Dr. Picklesimer is. It doesn't matter who I'm with. I'm just going to tell the truth. And here's what I'm not going to do. Watch. We've, got a, we've had a real problem with this in, in the Christian church. You know what we do? We put men on pedestals. Yeah. We're just so in awe of someone a man or a lady, you, you, you might just get your eyes on somebody. You're just standing in awe. And then you have this heart-crushing moment where you realize the person that you had on a pedestal, they're just flesh tanks as well. How many times have churches grown and been built and they've been built around a man and the personality of the man and the people are following a man instead of Christ? God is no respecter of persons. I love what Paul says here. It doesn't matter who I'm around. 
Who they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. What God cares about is truth. Truth and veracity. It just reminds me, this is my statement about that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I just love that. There are no big shots. There are no big eyes, little U's. I'm telling you, in this body right here, if you have your eyes on me, you better get your eyes off of me. The leaders in this church are just flesh tanks who've been saved by the grace of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. How many of you are thankful today that God loves all his children the same? Yeah, amen, amen. He loves us all the same. God doesn't have special kids, okay? God loves us all the same. We are his children. There is no, Paul says, there is no partiality. And I love what he says, but I am thankful that Peter, James, and John, they added nothing to what I set before them. In other words, Paul was saying, they validated that I was truly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me finish up with my last statement, verses 7 through 10, and just say that when we're talking about unity in the body, church, we need to always be working to protect that unity. And remember this, affirmation is always, always encouraging. It's always encouraging. Notice what Paul says in verse number seven. They didn't add anything to me, but on the contrary, when they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Paul being called to go and start churches and evangelize and do the mission work to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, here it is, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Notice Peter, James, and John knew by the Spirit of God, they knew that God was at work in Paul's life. And it just reminds me today, when, when God is at work and you're serving the Lord, just always be mindful. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be lied about. People are going to try to discredit you. That's exactly what they're doing to Paul. But when Paul got to three spiritual men, Peter, James, and John, they perceived, no, this is not a work of man. This is not man's movement. This is God's movement. God is at work. Notice what they did to him. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You know what Paul receives in this moment? He receives some affirmation. He uses this phrase, the right hand of fellowship. I grew up in church, of course. My, my grandfather was my pastor. My mom is sitting over here uh, today, and it's her dad, uh, uh, A.B. Payne, Reverend A.B. Payne, went to the old Howard College uh, Sanford University now in Birmingham, and a pastor for many years. And I remember as a kid, anytime somebody would come into our church, 
and they would join the church. He would always bring them down to the front, and everybody would walk by, they would file by, and my grandfather would always say this, we're going to give them the right, that's right, the right hand of fellowship. Now, where did he get that from? He actually got that from the Bible. Now, for my Wednesday night class, we would say this is more descriptive than prescriptive, all right, meaning that you don't have to do it this way. What is the principle here that we see in the passage? We see unity in the body. We see love. We see fellowship. Church, listen to me. I'm almost done. We're living in a day right now where we need to remind ourselves we're in this thing together. We squabble over church times and songs and everything under the sun. While the whole world's burning around us, we're arguing about Bible translations and hymns and praise songs. Can I get a witness in the house of God? We need to be together. I'm talking about those of us. I'm not talking about compromise. I'm not talking about unity at all costs. I'm not talking about an interfaith fellowship. Somebody say amen right there. I'm talking about those of us that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. On this Thursday, I have on my calendar, I have a lunch with some pastors in town. Some of us have been in this town for over 15 years. So you know what? We know each other. We know each other's wives. We know each other's kids. We know the struggles of ministry. And I can tell you right now what's going to happen when we get together. We're going to high-five, chest bump, hug. We're going to hang out. We're going to laugh. We're going to share war stories. And you know what? We look at each other. We're on the same team. We're not in competition. We wear the same jersey. The gospel, <laughs> right? Now, we don't all think alike. We're, we're all different. We got some Gators and some Auburn people and some, I mean, some really bad people. We're all different. But you know what? We're brothers in Christ. And I believe this with all my heart. I believe we would die for one another. I believe that. That's what Paul is saying here in these verses. God's called me to go over here to the Gentiles. God's called Peter to go to the Jews, but Peter, James, and John identified we're in the same gospel ministry, and they said, hey, Paul, just remember, take care of those that are in need as you go. Can you see? Stand with me, and I'm done. Just stand. Church, can you see, can you see here in this passage where unity makes us stronger, that we need doctrinal unity? We need to keep out the wolves the bad, we need to keep the bad teaching out of here, but when it comes to one another, we need one another. We need the fellowship. We need the unity. Here it is, and I'm done. Jesus prayed in John, John 17. What did he pray for? What did he pray for in his high priestly prayer? Father, make my disciples unified. Make them unified, God, because they're, they're going to be attacked they're going to be maligned. And we know that they all pretty much gave their life. They were all martyred, right, for following Jesus. Make them unified. And then Jesus prayed this, and the ones who come after them, 
that come to me in salvation. Did you know in John 17, Jesus prayed for you, child of God? And you know what he prayed? He prayed that you would not have a spirit of divisiveness, but you would have a spirit of discernment and a spirit of love and unity in the body of Christ. You know why? Because we're stronger and we're better when we go do, we go do kingdom work together. We're stronger when we're unified. One more thing. We need to be unified and stronger together because as the attacks of the enemy intensify against the church, we don't need to be shooting at each other. We need to be together. And all God's people said, can we pray?